0: This episode is brought to you by Brother Cook's Iron Cauldrons. You probably think you're a real foodie in the kitchen, don't you? You got the industrial-grade KitchenAid with all the attachments. You have got the sous vide machine on your counter and a full set of $1,000 knives and a stainless steel butcher block. But there's one thing professional chefs around the world will tell you no kitchen is complete without. A giant man-sized vat for outdoor cooking, something that'll hold three or four missionaries fully clothed. Why did old hags in our ancestors' time always cook with super-sized steamers? Because they understood that if a meal was worth the effort to cook, you might as well make enough for everyone. Why settle for a fire pit in your backyard when the whole family can sit around a simmering stew in a giant pig iron pot, chanting the ingredients as they drop them in?
1: I of Newt, leaf of basil, granulated sugar of imperial.
0: And when our listeners order a full-size boiler to prepare their daily mensal, Brother Cooks will send them a long, sturdy pole to tote-captured live quarry to their cooking area, whether a full-size deer or a nosy neighbor you've caught looking over the fence again. Just give the clerk the promo code REREAD, one word. And thank you, Brother Cooks Iron Cauldrons, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast.
1: Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story.
0: Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer.
1: Craig, we had a lot of great comments on Rereading Wolf Facebook group.
0: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed.
1: Last week, we were all talking about Hildegren, how suspicious it was. that a noticed that his foot sank so far in the sedge, implying a great weight and other things.
0: Mecca Hildegren. That's what it is. <laughs>
1: Okay, I like that, yes. <laughs> Fights a smog monster.
0: Oh, somebody somebody, somewhere mentioned Sidero as like his uh, Severian's Gundam armor. And I was like, oh, you're right. I <laughs> was like, it is.
1: It is. That's so cool. Well, Sean Michael Robinson had some theorizing of his own. He led with the secret origin of Hilderin finally revealed. <laughs> and he takes us to the pages of Beatrix Potter's story, The Tale of Mr. Todd. It's a Peter Rabbit spinoff, starring his cousin Benjamin Bunny, who you know, made a short appearance in the first Peter Rabbit story. Here, Benjamin Bunny is all grown up and married to Peter's sister Flopsy. The titular Mr. Todd, Talos Todd, is the fox who happens to be the archenemy of the badger, Tommy Brock. And Mr. Todd, the fox, carries a cane. Okay. Tommy Brock, the badger, Remember the badger is Hildegren's nickname. The badger has kidnapped the children of Benjamin and Flopsy, hiding them in an oven in Mr. Todd's house. And then he takes a nap. Now Benjamin and Peter Rabbit track Tommy Brock in an attempt to rescue the babies. Lucky for them, Mr. Todd comes home and finds the badger asleep in his bed. And then there's a fight between the two and Peter and Benjamin are able to sneak the babies out of the house. So in the story, Benjamin Bunny is following the tracks of the badger through the wet woods, and the text says there was not much difficulty in tracking him. He had left his footmark and gone slowly up the winding footpath through the wood. He had rooted up the moss and wood sorrel. There he had dug quite a deep hole for Dog Darnell and had set a mole trap. A little stream crossed the way. Benjamin skipped lightly over. Dry foot, the badger's heavy steps showed plainly. Well, as I told Sean, I've done a lot more with less.
0: <laughs> no, but that's interesting. That's quite a specific find on yeah. a badger, and that—that's, you know, awesome detective work for that. I, hard to hard to really figure out the rest of the characters, but I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Wolf took ideas like that from just different small pieces yeah. of things and i don't know i know i always mention wind in the willows has he ever mentioned beatrix potter before no, i, I can I mean, he
1: obviously had a soft heart for children's literature oh sure i mean sure. i try to go at it with the idea of finding the plot or characters in the plot serving as like a map for the story but sean doesn't see that as necessary yet. Mm-hmm. he said In all seriousness, I think both Hildegrin's nickname and Severian's Talos observations draw upon the deep well of animal symbolism that permeates fables and children's stories. Maybe Wolf had read Mr. Todd as a kid. Maybe he read any of the other dozens of prominent stories using these types of characters and stand-ins for sly villainy for a fox or skilled burrowers, a badger. Well, point taken. Could be.
0: And there is, Michael Andrew drucy has written an essay about how new Sun is filled with sort of cat and bear imagery. So we already get the animals there. And, in, and his point there is that those two groups are kind of opposed to each other. So it wouldn't be a far stretch to yeah. have some other animal types that maybe are in other kinds of combinations. But no, I'd be curious to see if there's, a, is there anything else about yeah. badgers or burrowing creatures that shows up yeah. uh, later on? I don't know. I'll keep my eye out for that, but
1: yeah. Well, Mike Benowitz listened to the last episode, and he has a lot of questions. Quote, while listening, a distant possibility struck me. Hildegren is found to be in the hire of the witches later on. We also suspect Agia of working for the witches. Is Hildegren part of the witches' conspiracy with Agia to bring Severian to Dorcas? Did Hildegren arrive ahead of time to put Dorcas's body in the right spot? So, Mike and I both agree that it's highly suspect that Severian happened upon the precise location of his grandmother's body that grandpa had been looking for for 40 years in order to just resurrect her. Mm-hmm. I offered a first Severian solution, but Mike says, no, it could be other people manipulating Severian. One thing he mentions in this theory winding that kind of blew me away was that Hildegren, every time he appears, is that a resurrection? There's a necropolis. They're exhuming a body, in mm-hmm. first chapter. They are literally resurrection men at that point. Then here, when Severian raises Dorcas. Then in Vodalus' camp, when they are resurrect Thecla. Then finally, at the end of Claw the Conciliator, when they resurrect Severian himself, the head of the day. That is astute. Well, what's the deal?
0: He is indeed a digger, and digging people up is... Again, getting back to that literal name yeah, of resu- resurrection or literal meaning man. of resurrection. It, yeah, he's a resurrection man. Yeah.
1: Sean Michael Robinson had his own view on the coincidental discovery of Dorcas's body. He said, on another topic, with all of the coincidences, scare quotes optional, around Dorcas's resurrection and Severian's other family members drawing close to him, it's worth remembering that within the mechanics of the story, blood has true power. For instance, Severian's blood soaking the thorn, flesh transmitting memory, etc., etc. It therefore gives us additional mechanisms for many of these other coincidences. The claw drawing like to itself, that is, bringing blood relations into its own proximity, including but not limited to Severian himself. However blind that mechanism might be, it's at least a plausible one within the framework of the story. Again, point to you, Sean. That's not satisfying to me, obviously. I tend to want a plot reason for everything, metaphor aside. It is true that it is a common theme in Wolf's stories that family finds each other, or drawn to each other.
0: Yeah, we don't talk about that as one of the big genre tropes, but when you're doing sort of long romances like this... The fact that everybody's connected, that's an old, old, old trope going back to like Greek romances and medieval romances where everyone, every one of the major characters ends up being related. And Dickens. To everyone else and Dickens. Yeah. Um, So it's, it is a bit of playing with the genre of these kinds of long interwoven tales the things that seem so disparate at first end up all coming back together in the end. it could be as much of that literary side of things as it is a plot reason for why he finds Dorcas. Um, Hard to say. I, I I still, I still feel like the here, this is like getting the claw that there's a kind of coincidence that Mm -hmm. feels more like the hand of something else working. Um, And whether I, whether I think that's like a plot, something that's actually manipulating things or whether it's supposed to be indicative of predestination or God or something like that. I'm not entirely sure, but it definitely seems like we're getting one or two of those, even if we don't yeah. know that until the very end.
1: So jumping from the Hildegrin chapter, Mike Farrar proffered a theory that the Kamean and the Mother, a character from the Book of the Short Son, and Mukor, a character from the Book of the Long Son and the Short Son, are all the same person. It's an aggressive theory, and I can't do it justice here. So check out the link in the show notes if you've read Long Sun and Short Sun. But in the process, he brings up a connection between the Kameans Lake of Birds and Lake Limna in the Whirl and the river that Horn sails on in the Book of the Short Sun. I found that really intriguing, and I'm going to talk about it in this chapter as well. So hang on. Filippo de Paola has thoughts about Agia's peacock print dress. It's pretty wide ranging. He says, it might be interesting to notice that the Islamic tradition puts the burden of losing paradise to peacocks. In the story, a peacock eats the snake and walks inside the garden of Eden, which lets the devil inside. Agia brings the devil, Severian, into the botanic gardens and gives Severian the claw and kickstarts his journey. That is a journey of redemption. Is there a deeper meaning in the book of the new Sun where the devil saves himself? The protagonist is as a devil is seen in other of Wolf's novels like peace in which Ald and Dennis Weir is, if not the Lord of darkness, at least a demon. Well, I don't know. You know, Wolf did say in one of his last interviews at the Book of the New Sun, he wanted to show a man who was raised to do terrible things and who reforms himself from the inside. So I suppose there's support for Filippo's theory here, although I've been interpreting that statement differently.
0: Yeah, and that's also a long... It's a long path to the peacock <laughs> dress. And, you know, I mean, it just, just saying, it, it is... A bit, but I like the, I, I still like the idea that it, even if it's not, you know, even if he's not the actual devil going in there, the fact that she's wearing a peacock dress and then walks yeah. into the jungle garden, you know, there's, there's something like that there that works quite well. I remember trying to figure out if, um, oh shoot, who was it? Um, the, uh, the Greek myth about the girl who gets turned into a cow and I Io, yeah, Io, and how she's guarded by...
1: Argus. Is it yeah. Argus
0: with all the different eyes? Yeah, and and that his eyes end up being on the peacock. But there, what's fun about that myth is that the eyes mm. then are only decorative when right. they end up on the peacock that he can't actually see anymore. Um, so in some ways, they're, it's it's more about that futility of beauty kind of thing, um, which might, I don't know. I mean, it's, with Asia, she's certainly alluring to Severian, but she's also incredibly dangerous. So it's not that you know she she certainly still has teeth so her beauty is still quite dangerous so i'm not sure if that one would work quite as well for that but no i do like the idea of peacock yeah, dress going oh, into the yeah, garden yeah, yeah.
1: i like working mm. in the peacock as a plot device michael andre durrice has an updated timeline for the book of the new sun in olton's library i haven't finished it i'm pretty anal about these things craig i i have to go back and look at all the textual references one big change is that he's reconsidered how long it's been between Severian and Emar, the almost just. He was previously on record theorizing that it had been a thousand years. He had textual reasons for that. But now he's placing more importance into Agia's claim that it's been 30,000 years since the time of the conciliator. Something that we had noted as well in Chapter 19. He's got some cool stuff about Jonas and... As he mentioned to us last fall, he's got some new ideas about that. So anyway, there's a link to the article in the show notes. Check it out.
0: I I have to admit, I'm kind of partial to any idea of the timeline that makes it seem longer and longer away. So the more time that passes, the happier I usually am. So I
1: like that. I I just like it that Michael is still changing his mind after all these years. Mm Mm-hmm. Redditor Harshiel had a very useful take on wolf and female characters. And this is going to come up in today's episode. Someone made a derisive comment about Jean's female characters, and I think it's simultaneously a bad rap and also has a degree of truth to it. But Harshiel responded eloquently and well, I'm just going to read it. If you can't look past that kind of thing, try anyway, because nobody reads Shakespeare for the feminism. All of Wolf's characters are through the lens of someone who grew up in Texas, fought the Korean War, converted to Catholicism, and was a doctrinaire conservative, his words, until middle age. At least at the time of writing of The New Sun, he believed women and men thought differently in general, which is a controversial idea now. He was friends and colleagues with people from many backgrounds and political beliefs So I get a bit annoyed when people say they can't manage it. Le Guin and Joanna Russ were among his admirers. They were able to get through it. Maybe he wasn't so bad. Anyway, his female characters are problematic, not terrible. They vary. He's written everything from one dimensional femme fatales to butch, lesbian military commanders, once even a transgender priest in ancient Greece. There is absolutely nothing mean-spirited or malevolent about him or his work. He tended to write about bad people in general. You're supposed to be uncomfortable with how they act. And Wolf makes no attempt to tell you who is right or wrong. Male secondary characters weren't developed much more than women. What was Baldanders really like as a person? His work followed a completely different set of rules. Mainly, I think he had trouble writing from a woman's point of view. You expect male characters to think about women's breasts, but not the other way around. This isn't me defending him. It's an element of his work that I've come to terms with in recent years, like his tone deaf attempts at comedy with accents. I'm about as left as you can get without being jailed for sedition. (laughs) Nobody's perfect, but Wolf comes as close as I could hope for. There's no one else like him. I got to say, you know, that, um, transgender priestess Drachina, that is incredibly deftly written by wolf Mm -hmm. that relationship between latro and drachyna it could have been ridiculous it could have been uncomfortable but it's not it's it's just perfect
0: yeah and the more and more i think about that issue, the more, the more it seems important to me that Wolf was really trying to write broken and flawed characters so much. And Mm -hmm. even if he wasn't beating you over the head with how bad they were. There are a lot of times um, when it just comes across. Like, I've been rereading Land Across lately, and Grafton just is a schmuck about women sometimes. <laughs> but it's but it comes to the point where it's like, well, that's, that's who he is and he's making him be terrible mm-hmm. um, for that reason. And he kind of, it comes back to bite him a few times. And it doesn't come back to bite all of his characters, but I do feel like that's the place to start. Like, even if, yeah, even if, like you said, in the end, he's you know, he's not going to be able to, to maybe write from a woman's perspective as well as maybe some other male writers are. I, I still, the more I think, the more I have a hard time thinking that, yeah, he's, he's being malevolent about it, that there's usually a reason for Mm -hmm. things that's going on. And I, don't really feel like it's a blind spot for a while. I was, I was feeling like it's just a blind spot in Wolf that, Oh, it's just kind of, you know, where he's from and whatnot, but more and more, I find it useful to start by saying, okay, this is an important part of this character and let's see where it goes first before we just think that, Oh yeah, that's just how Wolf treats women. So,
1: well, I've said this differently, but I can't improve on what he wrote. So, or she wrote. So the link is in the show notes. We got a direct message on Instagram from listener Nicholas Larson who with a suggestion to improve the podcast. He says, my only problem with the podcast is that it doesn't come out often enough. Chop, chop, guys. (laughs) Two weeks is good. Two weeks (laughs) is very good. Well, you know, I know he's making a joke, but it does bring up an interesting point. We've considered how to scale this thing. I mean, it's been over four months since Severian left the tower and we're still only 24 hours in his time. Mm -hmm. Alas, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. If we could just cool it on the multiple different angles on each phrase, then I guess we could somehow shorten the episodes and make (laughs) your editing job easier. But even if we had a team of elves editing all the episodes together it still takes about 10 days or more f- to get initial comments in, and the comments are so key. We could record a chapter every week and still get so far ahead of the podcast, but you know we just don't like to do that because some listener is going to pipe in and say something that affects our perspective on a character or a plot line originally once every two weeks seemed to be a practicality for never falling behind and, you know, for Craig to edit the episodes and still maintain a life. Craig, I don't know how those uh, Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast guys maintain all the different podcasts they do. That is insane. But it turns out that we can't do them any faster anyway. The listener comments are just, you know, too important. Michael Swanwick once compared Wolfe's stories to a giant bison, that Davy Crockett claimed to have seen that required three men to see all of it. Well, you know, y'all are that third man. We need you. <laughs> That's cool. And Interlibrary Loan came out.
0: Yes. Actual wolf news. Sort of bittersweet. <laughs> bittersweet that it's the last time we'll probably see a novel, unless there's one in his papers that we don't know about that someone will work on. But yeah, it's it was kind of sad. It's fun, yeah. but it's also sad.
1: Yeah, well, there's always got to be a last of something. I'm trying to finish Burrowed Man before I take it on.
0: Yeah, me too. That's what I'm, that's what I'm working on right now is finishing that up and then into Interlibrary Loan. So I've seen all people already posting about it, and I, I wasn't as part of the day one posters, but that's <laughs> all right. So I'll get there. Yeah. Chapter 24, The Flower of Dissolution.
1: Recap. We're still on the afternoon of the next day after Severian left the Manichin, where in the Garden of Sleep and Severian has inadvertently <coughs> resurrected his grandmother, <laughs> whose body has been missing for 40 years. Now Severian, Dorcas, Hildegren, and Aja are in the middle of the Lake of Birds on Hildegren's scowl. The chapter is called The Flower of Dissolution. That Craig, is an interesting term. Disillusion has a lot of meanings. It means to terminate, to eliminate by disintegration or dispersion, to dissolve or decay. It also means indulgence in debauchery.
0: That one I didn't know.
1: So this name could refer, I suppose, to its lethal quality, or it might refer to the way these duels are viewed by the community.
0: But yeah, I think it's going to make a lot more sense, of course, once we get into it. But yeah, so dissolution, un, undoing, <laughs> undoing of one, one form or another is what we have here. And, uh, and yeah, I have questions about why it is that. And we'll get into that with what the Avern is. and But it's important that the Avern is not the only flower that appears in the chapter. So, of course, I think we're talking about the Avern in the title but it might be something else too.
1: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Because almost immediately, Dorcas plucks a water hyacinth and puts it in her hair.
0: And this is one thing that's going to be a theme for her or a running motif for her, that she will always have flowers in her hair. And it's something that even he'll recognize her. At the end, that he kind of knows that her her skiff is is the one by the side of the river because there's a flower and it's not in her hair and it's dying and sitting there. And that's when he follows her in. But not just that character trait, but also the type of flower it is, a water hyacinth, which we were just talking a little while ago, of course, about Long Sun, where hyacinth is a rather important character.
1: Yeah, yeah. Water hyacinths are a species native to the Amazon So that fits. They're an invasive species in South Florida. And speaking of which, I can recommend a book by Lan Wright called The Last Hope of Earth, in which water hyacinths, as an invasive species, play a key role as they multiply and destroy the Earth's climate. I very much believe that the book is elusive material in the book of The Long and Short Sun. And of course, In those books, there's an important character named Hyacinth. There is also a Saint Hyacinth, for which the city San Jacinto is named. Yeah, didn't know. I guess, you know, the Mexicans called it San Jacinto. But what matters here, and explicitly matters, is the Hyacinth associated with the resurrection. Hyacinth was a Spartan hero. In mythology, Apollo was in love with a young man named hyacinth maybe it was an accident or maybe it was a conspiracy but he was killed by playing ring toss with apollo (laughs) Uh, this is not usually considered a risky game but you know when you're playing with gods all bets are off
0: (laughs) deadly horseshoes of the gods
1: (laughs) well if it were horseshoes i could almost believe it but ring toss (laughs) apollo is the god of medicine but despite all his efforts he couldn't heal or resurrect hyacinth so on the spot where his blood was spilt apollo created a deep blue flower the hyacinth however it is recorded by geographer and historian pausanias that there was a tradition in sparta that apollo did resurrect hyacinth and carried him to olympus so in roman catholicism the hyacinth which blossoms in the spring, and is associated with Easter. Finally, in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, there is this reference. You gave me hyacinths first a year ago. They called me the hyacinth girl. Yet when we came back late from the hyacinth garden, your arms full and your hair wet, I could not speak and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead And I knew nothing looking into the heart of light, the silence. And now I think is a good time to talk about Dorcas's name is Greek for gazelle. This is interesting because Dorcas is not technically a saint's name. The saint's name is Saint Tabitha. Her story is in the Bible, Acts chapter nine. The verse says she was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. So I'm no textual scholar, but Acts was written in Greek and Joppa is an Aramaic community. So I can imagine the original meaning of this verse was that there was a woman named Tabitha whose name translated means gazelle. So Tabitha was a widow who had a very good reputation among the Christians in the area. So she was a Christian who lived in Joppa, today a district of Haffa in Tel Aviv, Israel. All right. So the verse goes, now there was at Joppa, a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated is Dorcas. This woman was known for her good works and charity, and then she got sick and died. After washing her, they laid her body out in an upstairs room. They heard that Peter was in a, the nearby town of Lydda. So two men were sent to ask him to come. Now, it's not said what they expected him to do. Perhaps they just invited him to pay his respects. So the verse goes on. When Peter got there, there were widows grieving, and they showed Peter the coats and clothes that Dorcas had made. And that's why she is the patron saint of tailors and seamstresses. Then Peter put them all out of the room and kneeled and prayed and turned to the dead body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and lifted her up and called the people in to the room. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and it came to pass that Peter remained many days in Joppa with a man named Simon, a tanner. Luke is a man who loves to record obscure details, (laughs) not being sure which of them will be important. A man after my own heart. Yeah. Definitely. And speaking of obscure, pointless details, Severian says that other than the averns he can see in the distance, this is the first flower that he'd seen in the Garden of Endless Sleep. And that's interesting for a garden. He looks for other hyacinths, but he doesn't see any.
0: Of course, based on the mythological story, yeah, it makes sense that, you know, a flower growing after the death, it's it's related to resurrection. She's just been resurrected. Of course, it is connected to that. What I think is also pretty cool, though, is that he specifically calls it a water hyacinth. So it's not just any hyacinth, but specifically one that in this case would
1: would grow on the water. Well, in the Amazon, there is a flower called a water hyacinth. It's not the same as the one in Greece. You know, as when it comes to naming of things, Wolf wouldn't care.
0: The only reason I bring that up, though, is because, of course, we know that Dorcas is not going to be totally happy with her resurrection. And that water, which, as we talked about before, is often a kind of symbol of resurrection and rebirth and renewal, it terrifies her, right? It's it's so one thing I feel like is that in some ways it's not just being any hyacinth, but actually being this water hyacinth, based on the way that water comes a really sort of complicated symbol later on, is that if we're doing some very close ways to read the symbols, we're getting a complicated connection here for Dorcas, that it's not just a resurrection flower that she has in her hair, but it's one that also has this symbol of something that's going to be terrifying. Right. So I just like that it's that one little extra detail of it being a water hyacinth yeah. that adds a different dimension.
1: Well, what about this flower that suddenly appears out of nowhere? What does that mean?
0: Probably talk about that whole paragraph because he doesn't, uh, he actually has, starts off with one of his little philosophical asides. Yeah. Okay. Usually he waits a few paragraphs or events until he starts going off like this. But right now he, uh, he, he jumps right in. OP, as it were.
1: <laughs> yeah. He speculates that maybe the flower came into existence only because Dorcas reached for it
0: we're mixing up cause and effect again here, right? Or at least, where are we? I mean, in, in some ways, I was actually thinking about this and this is way too much to push it, but whatever, it's fun. That the idea that the the flower only exists when she reaches for it, there's something almost like quantum <laughs> quantum mechanics about that, that as soon as she tries to observe the flower, then it exists. But before then, maybe it didn't. Could maybe, I don't know. But the other thing I like is that back when we talked about Father and Aries mirrors, I really still am kind of excited by that one idea that what it does is it shows a reflection. The fish is a reflection. And then because a reflection needs something that causes it brings this, it brings its reality. The thing that causes the reflection into existence doesn't just bring it from another dimension, but actually it's sort of like saying I came into existence because my shadow needed something to cast a shadow, right? Like that's just a very weird kind of thought. But Wolf brings it up and he kind of brings it up here again, too. That um, we have here something playing with the idea of something that didn't necessarily exist before there was a need for it or before there was a reflection of it or before there was an echo of it and that that cause and effect and what causes things is reversed
1: right, a little bit in this way. Well, that kind of reminds me of the story of the cat. There is a girl with who suddenly...
0: Yes, yes.
1: Has a bird suddenly appear at her feet because she's got an invisible cat. And (laughs) my question in this case is, who is Dorcas's cat in this case?
0: Yeah, and actually that's kind of connected to that idea about, you know, who is her cat? Like, what is the thing here that's causing this weirdness, right? Because I feel like when Severian brings it up, At this point, he's just bringing it up as a sort of weird offhand possibility because things seem strange in this area, which could just be like we said, because he's on the other side of the world and it's nighttime when it should be day and and it's cold when it should be warm. But it also might be the fact that because Dorcas is really kind of on the other side of things, right? Like she's died and come back, that she's in touch with things in a different way. It doesn't hurt then that she can reach out and get something symbolic (laughs) because she's passed over to some spiritual side at some point. It kind of works. Like there's that suggestion. I feel like that's at least on the surface, why Wolf puts that notion here and why he has Severian bring it up as if to kind of suggest that she's somehow in touch with something different like that.
1: (laughs) Severian says that in the clear daylight, when rationality rules, he understands that such things are not possible, but then he is writing by night. And at that moment, With Dorcas's flower a foot and a half away, he recalls something that probably went right by the reader, but that Severian picked up on immediately. Light is dim in this garden, and that Hildegren said that the Autarch built this place so that he could confer with the Kameon without going to the other side of the world, and maybe Hildegren didn't even know it. But that implies her cave, and this garden is actually on the other side of the world.
0: Yeah, and so if that's the case, then yeah, that's certainly one way that we get a little glimpse into some of the weirdness of this garden as
1: well. Because it's late spring here in the Commonwealth, south of the equator, but it's cold in the garden. It's afternoon in the Commonwealth, but the light is dim, and like maybe the sun has just gone down. He says something I'm not sure I understand, quote, for it would be summer soon with sleet riding the wind. Well, in the Commonwealth, it is late spring or early summer. I guess I understand. He's saying that it's summer now, but there's sleet riding the wind. Now I understand.
0: Yeah, it's an oddly phrased thing. Yeah. He does say, too. Oh, he does say here, too, the, the, here, this particular hyacinth is blue. So, hyacinths can be all sorts of different colors, but here it is a blue flower, just going back to blue and purple flowers that we've seen many times so far.
1: Right. And the blue flower of the mythical hyacinth is blue. So, Severian goes off on a beautiful and super strange free association of just the sort that can be annoying when I do it, <laughs> which is fair. I, I'm not Wolf, but anyway. Here it goes. The Increate maintains all things in order, surely. And the theologicians say light is his shadow. Must it not be, then, that in darkness order grows ever less, flowers leaping from nothingness into a girl's fingers, just as by light in spring they leap from mere filthiness and into the air? Perhaps when night closes our eyes, there is less order than we believe. Perhaps, indeed, it is the lack of order we perceive as darkness, a randomness of the waves of energy, like a sea, the fields of energy, like a farm, that appear to our deluded eyes, set by light in an order of which they themselves are incapable to be the real world. mist was rising from the water. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Reminding me first of the swirling motes of straw in the insubstantial cathedral of the Pellerines, then of steam from the soup kettle when Brother Cook carried it into the refectory on a winter afternoon. The witches were said to stir such kettles, but I had never seen one, though their tower stood hardly a chain from ours. I remember that we rode across the crater of a volcano. Might it not have been the Cumaean's kettle? Earth's fires were long dead. That is to say, the Earth's core had solidified, suggesting the far future for this world. Earth's fires were long dead, as Master Malrubias had taught us. It was more than possible that they had cooled long before men had risen from the position of beasts to cumber their face with their cities. But witches, it was said, raise the dead. Might not the Kameon raise the dead fires to boil her pot? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Several things here. A lot going on. Uh, Yeah. This could be why the birds don't die on this lake in a volcano, even though the name for the lake suggests Lake Avernus. There is no more volcanic activity. Volcanoes are understood in theory on Earth but living ones don't actually exist. Also, it suggests a part of the plan between the heroes and the witches, the alien being, the Kamehameha. Part of the plan is that they have to reignite the Earth's core. Incidentally, a lot of Earth's core is solidified. It's a good thing the sun has been weakened since the sun would kill all life on Earth without our magnetic shield.
0: Yeah. We definitely get a lot of possibilities about the sort of greater cosmic story that's going on here with those suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think the first time we where we're, we're told about earth's fires. And in fact, it's one of the few times ever that they talk about the core of the earth being dead. Is that right? Yeah. Um, that's not something that comes up over and over. He yeah. talks about the sun dying a lot, but not so much about the earth itself actually dying on the inside.
1: Yeah. It's not clear why the new sun would cause the Earth's core to reignite. So that might be a separate plan <laughs> that the, the heroes have going on. Hmm. Interesting.
0: Well, the part about before there too, the whole thing about the Increate creates all or maintains all things in order, surely. And then all about light. Mm-hmm. So that all goes back to something that Mark had said about how he thinks this is a very platonic book. And in one way, you can read the whole passage there about light being the increate shadow seems very platonic, mm-hmm. that that light is connected to order and that when you have less light, you have less order. And in some ways less being and therefore that what you should be doing is is looking towards the light all the time. And I think that's a very clear way that I think the overall meaning of that passage is supposed to say. But then there's also this weird way that it happens to, especially even right at the beginning, that when Wolf says that light is the increate shadow. And why I think that's cool is that you're already getting sort of lesser versions of a greater perfection. And you could say that that's just simply Pataan, that light of any kind that shows us things and is energy that can put things in order and let things move, that that is kind of like God's creative powers, but it's not exactly it. So it's kind of like a shadow um, because it's not God itself. It's just, you might say, the workings of God. And that could be, but it's also just a total reverse of what we're expecting, right? That that it's the inverse, that shadow and light are not supposed to be the same thing, but that's exactly what we get here. Mm. And to me, that confusion that comes up is really important because especially even in a world that that seems, I mean, a platonic world is supposed to be in some ways, a very simple world where there is a truth and a goodness that lies behind everything and what your whole job really should be doing is just understanding it and trying to find that. But there's also a more complicated way to look at it, which is that when you're in the world, trying to figure out what's light and what's shadow and what's meaning and what's not meaning or what's order and disorder is really hard to figure out. In other words, it makes sense from the Platonic perfects perspective. But when you're human, when you're in the middle of, of light and darkness, sometimes it's really hard mm. to figure out, well, what part of this is order? What part is disorder? And that's kind of what Severian's getting at. I feel like in the rest of it, where everything else then is couched in might it not be you know must it not be It's sort of like perhaps 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 in other words he's guessing at all these things it's not like him putting forward and saying this is what the truth is instead it's all a way to try to understand it and I think that whole mood in this whole passage of perhaps it would be might it be um, is really kind of cool because it's wolf still reminding us that we're we're in a position where we can't tell what The truth is, that even if there is some kind of capital T truth behind this world, when you're in Severian's perspective, figuring that out is incredibly difficult and there's no easy way to do it. Even if you have a clear idea of what light is and what dark is, trying to figure out what light is when light itself is God's shadow means that it's hard. It's just really complicated. And I, I just like that this is a cool passage that has both those ideas at once. There's sort of like a, a real confusion over what's true and whether or not you're in the day or night, and whether did I really just see a flower jump into that girl's hand? Because that's a crazy thought, but it might actually be what it ha- what's happened. Ah, it's just so cool. I just like that it's
1: all mixed up there. <laughs> well, you know, there is some hard exposition in this little aside. But I can't help feeling that all of this talk about light and darkness and order and disorder, that Wolf is trying to tell us something, that there's a reason why this aside is here. But I have no idea what he's trying to convey poetically and in some literary fashion. Do you have, am I off base? Is that going on?
0: Yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like I do. So, and here's, this is sort of to, to get super huge scale real quick, but I kind of think of it this way. So a lot of wolf stories, like even in this one, it's pretty clear that there's certain symbols that are supposed to be obviously religious, or at least to have religious overtones, like the sun, you know, the sun being the source of all life and needing the, the renewal of the sun, which of course fits all kinds of Christian stories, but also mythological stories. In other words, you've got the sun kind of standing in for God, right? Okay. But then at the same time, there's a whole lot of questions in this book about how directly you can put those symbols onto what's happening. In other words, the sun is not just the sun. The sun is also just one star that we're going to find out is caught up in a weird kind of science fiction conspiracy plot, right? It's not just as if God is acting. You've also got this whole story about the hieroglyphs and the hierodules, and they're directly interacting, which seems less like such a, a sort of pretty poetic, divine, symbolic story, but sounds more like uh, manipulation. And that's where you kind of get Peter Wright's take, that actually things seem kind of important and symbolic and religious, but really what he's what he's doing is telling you this. Just science fiction thriller. And if you get caught up in all that religious Mm -hmm. muck, you're kind of missing the point. And Wolf's trying to show you, according to him, that nothing really is purely symbolic like that. Um, An easy sort of shorthand for that, everything that seems like fantasy turns out to be science fiction. Uh Like everything that seems wonderful, it actually can be just explained in material terms. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, You can have that. You can take that take. But at the same time, I feel like Wolf is always doing this thing where it's always kind of both going on at once that of course there's that mythic religious part to all of this, but it's also not an easy kind of book, maybe like a C.S. Lewis book where at some point you're just going to say, ah, and here's where God interacted in the silent planet. You know, here's where God came in and, and something divine happened. And we should be in wonder of that divine moment. Wolf never quite gives you that kind of way. Everything could still be simple conspiracy and science fiction and material cause. In other words, you could still be in the darkness all the time, but even in that darkness there's still things like the light and the order that are going on that seem to give things purpose and meaning. And when you're in Severian's position, which is our position, when you're in the middle of light and darkness, trying to figure out what's what is is really, really hard. Um, and I feel like in some ways, that's kind of what this this passage is getting at, is that, yeah, the, it's both platonic and non-platonic. It's both religious and not religious at the same time. And part of the, the really cool thing that he's doing is trying to make a world where, it, in one sense, it's obvious that something deeper and more important and beautiful and mythic and religious is going on. But at the same time, it's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to pin down exactly what that is, because it always still could be material causes at the same time. And to have both of those going on at the same time is, to me, sort of at the heart of that that weird paradox of light being the shadow of God, which is also darkness. But light is what brings God to us. It's a paradox. And I feel like that's kind of what he's doing a lot of times here is trying to make that paradox in the story. Does that make any sense at all?
1: <laughs> so, well, does any of this have anything to do with the resurrected girl on the boat reaching f- for a flower and it being there? I think so, because she reached for it.
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, and it kind of goes back to the different reasons for things that that Dorcas and Severian will talk about, right? When they're they're looking at the tent that rises up, um, the Pelerine's tent. There's a way that you can see that as a miraculous vision. I saw a burning city in the sky, and it can make you drop to your knees and wonder, and it can be marvelous and have all kinds of deeper meaning for your life. And they talk about what that could be. If you see, if you're in the presence of something amazing and wondrous like that. At the same time, it can be explained by, hey, when air gets hot, it rises. And if it's inside of a big parachute, that parachute's going to rise. Right. Like both of those things can absolutely be true. And the fact that you can explain something with material causes doesn't necessarily get rid of the wondrous cause. In other words, so why this girl reaches for a flower. It's such a perfect moment that Dorcas, who has just been resurrected, should reach down and find a symbol of something beautiful. But that also has this symbolic resonance of resurrection and coming back to life. It's perfect. It's so perfect. It's almost like it had to be written by somebody, right? <laughs> um, and and it's there because it serves the purpose of that meaning and that story, and to make her beautiful. At the same time, it could have just grown there. It could have been it. You know, it's just a flower that happened to be in that spot in the lake. So was it put there? Was it put there by God, or for that moment, or did nature serve the purpose to bring it there for that moment? It can be both of those at once. And that's a lot to put on, just this this weird thing of the flower. I feel like. <laughs> but it's it goes so well with other things that Wolf talks about in other parts of the book. I mean just in other parts of Shadow, that I feel like he can make sense of it that way. I don't think he's really suggesting somehow that, you know, Dorcas has powers that she can reach out and make flowers come out. <laughs> you know, that's that would be cool. But I don't think that that it's 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 saying that. But I do feel like it's something about that notion of is something random or is it meaningful and appropriate, and it's possible that both of those things can be true at the same
1: time. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure whether what you're saying is what is supposed to be conveyed or not. I like it. It certainly fits with the Pellerines Cathedral uh, as it rises, as it burns. Have you ever read the short story by Raymond Carver Cathedral? No. There's a man, he's got a wife, and he has no real friends or connections and his wife has been carrying on this discourse with a man she's never met and you know just kind of like you and me and yeah, <laughs> but their their friendship is real even though they've never seen each other and then he comes to for a visit and you know i don't know yeah you know, he's kind of a, he's not happy about it but it turns out the guy's blind at one time that you know he's left forced to be left alone with this guy for a while, and he's watching a documentary or something about cathedrals, and the blank guy says, Um, could you tell me what a cathedral looks like? And he discovers, you know, he can't. He can't de- he's trying to describe what a cathedral looks like. Well, you know, it looks like a like a cathedral. So the meaning of the of the of the whole story is that if all you know yeah, is the definition of something all you know is what it looks like then you don't really know anything until you can describe what something is beyond its physical attributes then you don't really know it okay that just speaks this speaks to me so i hope that's what he's getting
0: at yeah i like it again i don't know if that's all exact here but but especially that that whole little passage about does light show order in darkness, especially if you have darkness that's, you know, where you can't tell exactly and and you're confused. Um, Is there really order in all of that darkness? Are we, do we have, he he says there are things that appear to our deluded eyes to be the real world, but we can't tell if they are or not. And it's all that sense of not knowing. Um, But even in the middle, even in all that darkness, you can still start to, figure out when something is beautiful or how something works. And I feel like that's what the second section goes on to when he starts to talk about how all this stuff comes from the water. He has no idea who the Cumaean is or what's going on, or if they're in a volcano or if they're on the other side of the world. But what he's doing is starting to try and reason things out. Like here are some possibilities mm-hmm. of things that might Yeah, be they're educated on. guesses. So even though he's totally caught in all this darkness. Yeah. Yeah. He's still got, he's still got a lot to go. Right. With
1: typically what i what i look for in the sides like when he goes off like this is that that somehow we expect him to go off and explain what we just saw no no what we just saw is an explanation of something else that he's going to go off and also explain or like it's like a dual explanation or something else so it's a reinterpretation of the events
0: yep I think that's a good way to put it. It's a, it's a total sort of riffing and reinterpretation of something that just happened. And in that sense, it feels like this, like lately I've been more and more convinced that the style of this is Proust and Proust does Mm. things like this all the time where he'll, something will happen and it will spawn a whole bunch of memories and speculations and things, none of which that ever really circle back in and explain the original thing that set it off. Like nothing ever really comes full circle and then gets closure. But instead each thing kind of is a jumping off to this other idea that is connected to what just brought it out, but not in the sense of sort of like, you know, a theory and an example and a theory and an example or an example, and then an explanation of a cause. Like it's never that clear. And this feels very much like that.
1: So I have a kind of convoluted explanation about that flower.
0: Curiositas Urthus.
1: On the rereading Wolf subreddit, Latro of Amber, commenting on the last episode, had a theory about the humming voices on the lake. He says, the idea came to me that this might be a clue as to Severian being somehow descended from the ilk of Aniri and the Kameyan. Not sure if you buy that theory. Well, you know, I'm willing to hear it out. But then he goes on. Maybe the energy Severian describes here is somehow emanating from the Kameyan herself or is a sort of signature of hers if she's in the vicinity at that exact moment. Perhaps Severian's feeling that he somehow understood the language without actually knowing it is the alien side of him stirring some inherent part of him recognizing itself. Well, Craig, I agree. I think in certain parallel ways, mm-hmm. remember, Severian says, quote, mist was rising from the waters, reminding me first of the swirling motes of straw in the insubstantial cathedral of the Pellerines, then of steam from the soup kettle when Brother Cook carried it into the refectory on a winter afternoon. The witches were said to stir such kettles, but I had never seen one, though their tower stood hardly a chain from ours. Okay, first of all, Severian is drawing a connection between the pelerines and the witches when he says that the lake is like a witch's cauldron or the burning straw in the pelerine's tent. or. Is Severian hinting, here again, that Aja who set the fire is a witch? That burning straw is like her cauldron. Okay. And then Severian goes out of his way to mention the mists on the Lake of Birds. Remember that a listener tied the mists to time travel. And I'm starting to think this might well be true, especially when it's associated with water. Water, Craig, even the River Guile. Is a kind of mirror. Remember that another listener gave an accurate explanation, I think, of the face of the maid who played Catherine in the elevation ceremony. That her face reminded Severian of a pool of water in a woods. And the listener suggested that Severian might be coming around to saying that her face resembled his own, that it was like looking in a mirror. Mm -hmm. And in the Hut in the Jungle chapter, Isagoma's cousin sees a fish in the water, just one chapter after Domnina encounters a mirror fish. All right. So the Lake of Birds is a massive mirror. Severian refers to it as the witch's cauldron. And assuming that the lake is a mirror and thus a time traveling device, the mist here in association with the Kumean, helps confirm that the mist connection might well be true. So, what if this lake is used by the command for her time witchcraft? Severian is hearing all the other Severians of the other universes. Maybe everyone in the boat is hearing different voices. Or maybe it's just general voices of another world. It doesn't really matter. So this gives us some idea of the mechanics of maybe the mechanics of the resurrections that maybe all of them are the dead or diseased bodies being replaced by a growing fish from the same person in another universe. Remember we're told that time travel is simply the ability to travel outside the universe. And then says the mirrors, the transmissions of reflections is mechanically how this is done or so it appears that's in chapter 20 and Dorcas postulated that the ability to heal and resurrect is a kind of control over time. And this might be why it takes time for a resurrected person to get themselves together like Dorcas and Miles. And because the new being is being formed on top of the previous one, there's a period where their minds are being rectified. We'd have to agree that this can only happen if the fish forms directly on top of the other body. If the fish forms separately, then the bodies or separate images merge later and they and they touch and there's an implosion. So Dorcas is on the lake. She's sitting on the mirror, just like Domnina thought someone would have to do to travel by mirror. And she's only recently come from another universe. So Justice Severian hears voices from another universe. She looks into the mirror and sees a hyacinth there from her original universe. And she reaches out. she touches it and bing it's suddenly created in Bria so that is why Severian wonders if it is only because Dork has reached for it that it existed and we're two paragraphs into this chapter Craig
0: (laughs) but that is beautiful that's ingenious and beautiful Um, because it brings all those parts together so well and plus it's just it's really cool I mean I don't know. I think it's, I like that so much because so so many times some of the theories don't integrate all the different images so well. That one does with everything that's going on. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I don't really have much to add. I mean, I could do my usual thing of saying like, well, we don't know if this, and it's <laughs> but every part of it seems to really resonate with the other parts. And it's it's a gorgeous image. It's a really cool way to think about it. So I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to stick with it for now <laughs> so because it's really fun. Um,
1: let's just try this. Let's try it. Let's, let's stick it out there, hang it from a tree and let the listeners take some pot shots at it.
0: <laughs> a pinata of ideas, but no, that's, that's good. And plus too, I mean, the other thing is that when we do see the Kumean do her thing, right? It's the, the sort of dust motes or whatever. It's not exactly a mist, right. but it is kind of a mist. It's just a different kind. It's not a water mist. It's, um, something else
1: but is there a lake is there any kind of water body of water nearby the commands hovel in claw the conciliator
0: don't remember i mean because they're in the stone town right and it's all it's all dry yeah and in fact he talks about that it's the dust moats that come together so there's no water there um but also it wasn't a it it seems like it's not necessarily actually traveling but maybe just creating an image of something like that's the other thing that is odd about that passage in claw is that it's the way that wolf describes it doesn't seem quite so much like they actually time traveled back there but instead that they saw these reflections or images of things or at least there's that's the way i always read that that part of how the the things that they were seeing get formed was that they didn't they seem more like shadows of something that was there rather than the actual thing i don't know but that's really cool that's, and I, I love how that comes, how you brought that back to the flower too.
1: <laughs> so Severian dips his finger in the water that is nearly at freezing point. Once again, he, this is a sign that where they are in some sense is some place where it's wintertime, probably on the other side of the planet, or maybe on the, in the northern hemisphere. Hildegren says, going to your death. That's what you're thinking. I can see it in your face to the sanguinary fields and he'll kill you, whoever he is.
0: Which, of course, is not what he was thinking at all.
1: (laughs) No, (laughs) far from it. Hildegren is not a good read of people. So (laughs) Dorcas takes his hand and says, are you really? So I guess it's been over 40 years that these averns have been here since Dorcas knows about the sanguinary fields.
0: Yeah, she certainly seems to to be part of it. And plus, I mean they she swallowed the shot, so we know that <laughs> that she's at least around enough for those traditions to be
1: right to be in. Hilderin says, you don't have to, you know, there's them that doesn't follow the rules and yet runs free. Severian denies that he was thinking about dueling or dying. Who's, who do you think he knows that don't follow the rules and yet run free? I don't know. Maybe you could go off and join the military. You go off and join the revolution. So he does know votalists. We do know that. Yeah. But Dorcas whispers, yes, you were thinking that your face was full of beauty and a kind of nobility. When the world is horrible, then thoughts are high, full of grace and greatness. The world is filled half with evil and half with good. We can tilt it forward so that more good runs into our minds or back so that more runs into this, but the quantities are the same. We only change the proportion here or there.
0: So a few minutes ago, she couldn't barely speak. And all of a sudden now she is talking about relative amounts of goodness and evil in the world (laughs) and how to change things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Severian definitely takes after his grandmother. (laughs) It's responds, very I would tilt it as far back as I can until at last the evil runs out altogether. It might be the good that would run out, but I'm like you. I would bend time backward if I could. Ah, okay. Though, there's something he's, then he goes on. He says, nor do I believe that beautiful thoughts or wise ones are engendered by external troubles. Now, Severian and Dorcas are dueling poetic affirmations here. Mhm. She says, "I did not say beautiful thoughts, but thoughts of grace and greatness, though I suppose that is a kind of beauty. Let me show you." She takes his hand and puts it inside her ragged dress right on her right breast. Okay. That's pretty forward. I should stipulate that a lot of readers hate this scene. And they, the ones who don't like this book will focus on it and cite it in condemnation. Yeah. Because the writes, I could feel the nipple as firm as a cherry and the warmth of the gentle mound beneath it, delicate, feather soft and alive with racing blood. She says, now, what are your thoughts? If I have made the external world sweet to you, Aren't they less than they were? That is, less dark and troubled. This is some pretty hippy-dippy stuff.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. in responds that she's like some wise guru. Where did you learn all this? He says, her face was drained of its wisdom, which condensed in crystal drops at the corners of her eyes. Which is to say, she only responds with tears in her eyes. But yeah, this is... This is so Dorcas in this scene is the quintessential manic pixie dream girl. Is that right? Yeah, it seems like
0: it. I mean, it's especially when you think that just a few minutes ago, she was frozen to the core, could barely say her name. And now all of a sudden she's bantering with some guy she's never met before. And yeah, doing this little action. Yeah, you can totally see it on the one hand as a weird kind of wish fulfillment. Um, You could also see it as very much, very maybe heavy handed, but still characterization. Like this is still what Dorcas is going to be like for most of the time. I mean, she is always willing to stop and think and smell the roses and wonder what's going on and make sort of extreme gestures like this. She's going to be like this the whole time. So on that hand, I can see it. Um, at the same time though, yeah, it, it is one that reads a little false. <laughs> you know, if you're just thinking about the, the realism. Um, the one, the only thing for me that makes it not false is that Severian's been in this weird mood. And Dorcas, maybe because of what she's gone through, she is in a different, sort of headspace right and she is thinking these sort of crazy thoughts because she has just seen maybe the light as it were and, and it's coming back um it could be and um and it also could be flirty i mean we do know that they're attracted to each other she certainly could be having some feelings for him like that it's weird though because if you imagine that she just woke up like why isn't she immediately trying to well she can't remember everything I guess so she doesn't she can't find her want her husband and wanting to attach yourself to someone who seems like they could take care of you when you're in a a, incredibly vulnerable situation like that yeah maybe Mm -hmm. um but um, I still, I think if you want to be generous, the best way to see it is that actually this is kind of what she's like for a mm. lot of the book. That it it is, it's way out of bounds of what most people would be like, but I feel like it fits with who Dorcas is a lot of the time from here on
1: out. Well, definitely the philosophical asides and, and thoughtfulness, maybe not the sexual forwardness though. I mean she does it's not like she's some sort of you know spawn ranch guru who sits there and talks about free love all day right. long. she's
0: now, I will say it is a great way to make her point <laughs> i mean I, I feel like that's it's <laughs> yeah. an effective rhetorical strategy
1: Very says, yes, you have my attention, so yeah,
0: but um no, i mean it it is i think it is like you know moments like this that sort of stir people up when they're like okay the way wolf treats women yeah you know um in certain in certain sessions yeah you know you can totally see where it comes from right um i did say one thing on that that somebody mentioned somewhere not too long ago that did make me think of it was that if you're thinking that what wolf is doing in this book is trying to have tons of genre stereotypes and then overturn them Having the, the, you know, uber shirtless guy who gets all the girls to hang after him and, and hang all over him while he stands there looking manly, you know, that's how a lot of his relationships start off, but they never stay that way. Right. I mean, Dorcas ends up having to leave him and Aji is trying to kill him and Thecla actually turns him into part of her. So um, even though a lot of his relationships with women do kind of start off by either lust or, or by, in this case, Dorcas kind of throwing herself at him a little bit, they never stay that way. Uh, so the, the idea that this could be kind of like Conan, who, you know, as soon as Conan meets a woman, she throws himself at him. Right. I mean, that's pretty much how Robert Howard wrote a lot of the stories. Mm -hmm. Um, You kind of get a bit of that here, Uh, but then it it definitely goes in a different direction and I can see that.
1: Well, if this scene feels creepy from a feminist standpoint, it's going to get super creepy when you get to the end and you find out who Dorcas is.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's where it feels like even more, especially knowing this, you know, Wolf is, he's, he's having this little section here Completely knowing that, okay, I'm playing with you and and maybe you're sitting here thinking that I or Severian is going through some wish fulfillment thing, but the whole time it was my grandmother, right? So it totally still (laughs) undercuts and subverts that fantasy. There's a different way to look at it too. I mean, look at the last thing. Where did you learn all this? I asked. Her face was drained of its wisdom, which condensed in crystal drops at the corners of her eyes. So it's like she's had this moment of sort of playing along with this game, but then he says that she lost it. Like, like she was in a, she had a moment. She was in this, this vision almost as if, I mean, I joked before about her seeing the light, but maybe it's like all of a sudden she was still connected to something, but then like the mood has passed instantly as soon as he says that. And her face was drained of wisdom and she's crying. And all of a sudden she's back to just feeling lost. So maybe it was kind of like a moment of I don't know mania or reverie that she was going through and you could say that it's because of all the psychological stuff she's going on her, or, or maybe she was still feeling in touch with something from the other side um, but that last sentence does kind of say Severian pointed out he's like that was really weird <laughs> and then he notices that <laughs> she kind of loses it and she cries and those little crystal drops I mean crystal crystal light that's falling out. The, the light is leaving her just a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. So maybe you could argue that that last line is Severian kind of looking at her like, whoa, <laughs> you are kind of, you are, You know, that was a very strange interaction we just had. Um,
1: well, he says, where did you learn all these things? And we know that she has just come back from the great beyond itself. Yeah. You know, much of this story you don't really see real supernatural in this story, you right. there all it's always a scientific explanation there's time travel there's there's time manipulation, there's matter manipulation, but not real supernatural but he this is maybe a hint of seeing a world that is supernatural, the world beyond death. she's come back and come back recently, and she carries with her the wisdom of wherever that is,
0: yeah wanting to keep beauty in the world. I mean, it's sort of, she's talking about like cosmic balance of good and evil mm-hmm. and you tip it different ways, but it stays the same. And then we hope to have things. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's way up there in the clouds, but, um, exactly. but yeah, but then I, you know, it's gone, but then it, it kind of drains up. But no, that's that. That maybe that's kind of one thing that's going on. It is, you could say then, okay, well, if she's in a sort of religious reverie, then <laughs> it makes her, you know, having him grope her even weirder. But
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they finally get to the Averns, and the shore is less marshy here. For people looking for short sun connections, most of the shoreline is like the floating <laughs> islands of plants. But here, there's soft soil they land close enough to see the flower and they aren't just a smear of white. They can make out their size and shape. Sovereign reminds us that these are extra, these plants are extraterrestrial creatures. We call them plants and flowers, but that's probably an inaccurate category. Sovereign writes, they had a stiffness, a geometrical precision, surely born under some other sun. The color of their leaves was that of a scarab's back, but infused with tints at once deeper and more translucent. But maybe it seemed to imply the existence of light somewhere, some inconceivable distance away, a spectrum that would have withered or perhaps ennobled the world. All right, so that's to say they are black and maybe shiny, but with phosphorescent colors the fact that it looks like a scarab's back
0: it's also going back to that point about the the increate with light being the increate shadow about there being a light that is greater than light that's not like light mm. anymore <laughs> it's like a light that's so <laughs> different but so beautiful that it almost doesn't become light anymore um it's still, it's, it's a similar theme to what he's talking about this time though. It's, it's interesting. Cause it's not God, it's not a spiritual thing. It's just a different world. And that goes back, I think, to the, that ambiguity that Wolf brings up about is, is, <laughs> is it just alien or is it divine is it, you know, is it supernatural right. or is it just totally different? And it's, when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to tell.
1: Yeah. And and the leaves are the color of a scarab's back, which you know means like black but kind of metallic, shiny, glossy black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But a scarab is a symbol of death, a symbol of potential resurrection. But I would guess in this case, like a it's a sun symbol, but maybe a black sun, maybe a sun of death. Yeah. Severian says the leaves look like dagger blades, stiff and pointed. I guess Gerlois trained the apprentices in sharpening blades because Severian says that the leaf edges are sharp enough to satisfy even him. Atop the leaves are the half-closed white blossoms. Severian writes that quote, they seemed creations of pure beauty, virginal fantasies, guarded by a hundred knives. The blossoms are white and lush, and their petals curled in a way that would have seemed tousled, except they formed a complex swirling pattern that drew the eye like a spiral limbed on a revolving disc. Limbed here means outline or delineated.
0: So, one thing as I'm reading that, I've got a picture of a hyacinth up on my computer right in front of me, and it's kind of cool. I'd never really thought of this before, but some the the collection of hyacinths actually kind of looks exactly like what he describes um, in certain huh. ways and I, I wouldn't have noticed that if it wasn't just sitting there in front of me but it's kind of cool that the the hyacinth has all these <laughs> curling curving petals and um, yeah I mean granted they don't look sharp and deadly but it's still kind of huh I wonder if that's at all intentional or if that's just me trying to make connections right now but yeah the Avern is a alien dangerous hyacinth okay yeah, everybody should do it go look up a picture of a hyacinth and see if it has a <laughs> swirling pattern that draws the eye like a spiral limbed on a revolving disc
1: <laughs> don't look into the light george i can't help it it's so beautiful <laughs> ah! so they walk towards them with ajia in front leading them. As the Chameleon Sib in this Aeneid story, she's the guide to the underworld. Assuming Dorcas is Dido, who Aeneas encounters there, and Owen is Aeneas's father, Anchesis, whom they're going to get guidance. Then Hildegren is Aeneas's undeveloped companion, Achates. Then it's Severian, and then Dorcas, Hildegren behind. Now, Aji explains how to pick the plant. She says, good form requires that you pick the plant yourself, Severian. The trick is to put your arm under the lowest leaves and snap the stem off at the ground. She says she'll go with him and advise him, but Hildegren won't let her approach the plant. He can't stop Severian, but he and the women will stay back. Severian has been thinking he's heard Hildegard's voice before, and of course we know he has. Suddenly he realizes, though, who he is and that he was the big man in the Acropolis with Vodalus. And now we get some information about Severian's memory. He says, As I have said, I remember everything. But he often can find a fact, face, or feeling only after a long search. I suppose that in this case, the problem was that from the moment he had bent over me on the sedge track, I could see him clearly, and previously, I had hardly seen him at all. When Hildegren said, I'll take these females to safety, it reminds him of that night when he took Thea to safety. Aja continues to shout instructions to Severian.
0: I am curious why Hildegren stops her. Is it just because like she says good form says you have to do it or is he really just worried about their safety and saying those things are too dangerous for more than one person to be around?
1: I don't think he thinks anybody should be approaching them. But if Severian's going to insist on doing this stupid He's he's been trying to advise him not to do this.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. In the
1: true. first place. And so he's, you know, if if he wants to to be foolhardy with his own life, that's fine. But he's not going to let anybody else take part if he can. And, you know, uh, he does seem very chivalrous about women, doesn't he? So yeah. that seems to be his role often. Except he doesn't really like Asia. but even so.
0: So, no, on his memory, though, I do, this is sort of, yeah, it's it's putting qualifications on what Severian means by having a, a perfect memory. And I think sometimes we always think of it as like a, a infinite database that's at his fingertips at every moment. Mm -hmm. But, um, apparently he says it's more
1: like time travel.
0: Yeah. And the way he says too later on about how it overwhelms him when he actually goes back in his memory. Um, it's almost like he has to really make a lot of connections sometimes for all those things to be there. And right. so that would maybe be why here that he's, it's one voice he heard one night a long time ago. And now he's, you know, his subconscious is yeah. clicking everything together. Yeah.
1: Well, and maybe because he's not looking at Hildegren now he's walking towards those flowers and he's, here's, you know, I'm going to stay back here with women. He suddenly all the connections are put together. Here's right. he just the voice. So Agia continues to shout instructions to Severian. The leaves are poisoned. Twisting your mantle tight around your arm will give you some protection, but try not to touch them. And watch out. You're always closer to an Avern than you think. At first I thought this was because of the translucent leaves, but I think it, it's clear it's more than that. Severian speculates and observes. He says, whether the Avern is deadly to the life of its own world, I have no way of knowing. It may be that it is not, that it is only dangerous to us by reason of a nature accidentally inimical to our own. Whether that is so or not, the ground between and beneath the plants was covered with short and very fine grass, grass quite different from the coarse growth elsewhere, and this short grass was littered with the curled bodies of bees and dotted with the white bones of birds. Ah, there's your Avernus connection. Here's
0: our dead birds. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but that point about it always being closer than you think. Um, Shoot. I feel like I should know this, but is it, is it attracted to heat? Is that one thing that they find out that it, it no,
1: no. Back? Well, yes. Yes, they do. That is, but that's not why it's always okay. closer. It's it's a it's a it, well we'll read. It's a, it's literally a, an optical illusion. It's like a walking. It's constantly oh, okay. an optical illusion. So now Severian realizes a problem. He has to pick a weapon, but he doesn't know anything about the duel. So how does he pick the flower that's best? Alas, his social upbringing undermines him. He could go back <laughs> and ask Asia but then he'd have felt absurd asking a woman about this. (laughs) So he chooses to go with his gut. If his choice was bad, as would say so. So he can't ask her, but if she chooses to tell him, no, no problem. What is he going to do? You know, women, they come, (laughs) these flowers come in lots of sizes from seedlings that are six inches tall, 15 centimeters to mature ones that are about 50 inches tall, 125 centimeters. The older ones have fewer leaves that are larger. The smaller the plant, the narrower the leaves, and the more of them. Sovereign figures that they'll use the plants as maces, so he needs to pick one with the longest stalks and the largest poisonous leaves, but those are hard to get to because they're surrounded by other averns he'd have to pull up a bunch of plants to get there. And since Asia didn't advise that, he figures those tall ones aren't the ones he should get. So instead, he chose one that is 36 inches tall, about 90 centimeters. So he gets down and he reaches for it and realizes that just like Asia warned, the plant that he thought was a couple feet away was actually right There. It's a living optical illusion. So he pulls back immediately. And again, the plant looks like it's far away, too far away even to reach for. He's not even sure if he can safely lay on the ground and grab the stem. He doesn't trust his eyes. He thinks maybe he should just use his sword to chop the stem. But the girls are watching and he worries (laughs) that they'll think he's a sissy. (laughs) But he knows. He's going to have to touch the plants in combat. So now he approaches the plant slowly with his arm from wrist to shoulder, flat against the ground. The plant leaves seem to be right in front of his face, less than a foot away. And they seem to move as he breathes so that they're close enough to be affected by his breath. So as he's trying to snap the stem, and it wasn't easy. He thinks, I think maybe he should have reconsidered the sword. But as he's doing that, he can see why no grass grows under the averns. The plant is shaking as he tries to break off the stem, and one of the avern leaves just barely cuts one of the blades of the coarse marsh grass, and the entire patch of grass, 40 inches across, was already withering. Man, Inire really went overboard to kill those manatees. <laughs> Don't assign him any tasks. Anyway, now he has the plant, but how to get it out of here? He can't just carry it in his hand on the boat. It'll kill someone. Remember, this lake is like a bowl with high edges and the trees at the top. So he climbs up the embankment and cuts a young tree sapling. He chops off the limbs and he ties the avern to the end of the trunk. Now he can walk through town like he's carrying a strange plant flag. Now, Ajia explains how to use the plant during the duel. Severian gets another plant to practice with, and Ajia doesn't like his attitude. He's not being nearly as careful this time. He thought he was supposed to use it as a club, but you hold the plant in one hand and pluck the leaves with the other thumb, and index fingers, careful not to touch the edges or point, apparently holding the plant in the left hand and throwing the leaves with the right. But I think a lefty like Severian would feel more comfortable throwing it with his left hand. The leaves are stiff enough and I guess weighty enough to be like little throwing knives. They're poisoned and razor sharp. But Aja gives a key piece of advice. Don't Get the plant too close to your opponent. Keep it out of his reach. You don't want them grabbing the stem and snatching the plant for you. Now, this does not seem like a good idea, Craig. No. You'd probably end up, at best, killing the opponent as well as yourself if you tried to take the the plant out of their hand, rather than only yourself. But this isn't a real strategy. Aja wants Severian to keep the plant somewhere close so that when the warmth of his hand causes the plant to open and attack, he'll be close enough to be attacked by the plant. Right. Doing this, keeping it close, but not too close is tricky. Even in practice swirl, the swirling pattern of the flower is hypnotizing and it makes you want to get closer and closer. And he's already explained how the whole plant is an optical illusion. So while you're plucking leaves, You're not supposed to look directly at the venomous plant. The waxy leaves are easy to throw, though. They can be thrown point first or spinning. All right. Now, Severian, who has realized that Hildegren was the guy with Vodalus in the Necropolis, wants to talk to him about that. But he had no chance right now, not until Hildegren finishes rowing them back across the lake. And then for a bit, while Aja is focused on Dorcas trying to convince her to get lost, Severian whispers, I'm a friend of Vodalus too, or something like that. Hilderin says, You've mistaken me, young sir, for somebody else. Do you refer to Vodalus the outlaw? Severian says, I never forget a voice or anything else. You tried to brain me with your shovel. It turns out that this was the worst thing that he could have said. (laughs) Hilderin's face goes blank. He backs into his boat and he rows away. So, Severian's ploy didn't work, and neither did Aja's to get rid of Dorcas because when they walk out of the botanical gardens, Dorcas is still with them. Severian lets Aja try to shoo Dorcas away because he figures that with Dorcas around, Aja, you know, he won't be able to convince Aja to let him do it. So, Severian is a bad reader of women, too. But he also doesn't want her to see him die, doesn't want Dorcas to see him die. He figures things are bad enough for her already without that. Super thoughtful Severian. (laughs) He doesn't want Dorcas to see him die, and he also doesn't want her as an obstacle to getting it on with Aja. So Severian reminds us that he's been pouring out his sorrow to Aja all about Thecla and how he pines for her, because that's going to be a plot point in the next book. But he's not agonizing over Thecla anymore. He says, Now these new concerns had replaced it. And I found I had poured it out, indeed, as a man might spill sour wine on the ground. But the use of the language of sorrow I had for the time being obliterated my sorrow. So powerful is the charm of words. No kidding, Severian which for us reduces to manageable entities all the passions that would otherwise madden and destroy us. Severian has been paying attention to me for the last ten chapters, Greg, because he says, <laughs> Whatever my motives may have been, and whatever Asia's may have been, and whatever Dorcas's may have been for following us, nothing Asia did succeeded. That's pretty defensive, Mr. Wolf, but I'm on to you,
0: <laughs> so what do you think about the whole idea here about him? He's like i've it's almost like saying i I wrote so many sad poems that I had finally stopped being
1: sad, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it,
0: <laughs> yeah, so powerful is the charm of words, which for us reduces to manageable you know this is one of those places where I think it is probably good to look at Severian saying that and be like, dude, a second ago, a girl just (laughs) grabbed your hand. It's like, we know the real reason why you're distracted at the moment. You know, it was hard enough with Asia, but now you've got somebody throwing herself at you even more. Um, And yeah. the And now you
1: can't decide which one you want to have sex with
0: exactly yeah so you've got you've got something else here so that's one place where it does feel like you know maybe this is the closest i've seen to Severian just flat out lying <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah but um but yeah so I, that's one place where it's it's hard to say that especially since he hasn't really been talking about thecla for a couple chapters you know i mean it, it's been since they were um in the jungle hut or before then that he was thinking about her right I guess in terms of, you know, Wolf needing to get Severian really focused on Dorcas, maybe. So it seems like they're, I don't know. I feel like it would have been more genuine to, for him to just admit something like, you know, and I was really moved by (laughs) Dorcas. And even if he did it in his normal way of, you know, and I so wanted to protect her, which is how he acts, right? Like he's, he's talking about all the things, like he wants to keep her warm and, and safe. And that seems, you know, quick but still legitimate given how he's acting
1: not so much he lets he lets as you about browbeater because he's thinking that there could be the reward of sex afterwards
0: mm, true yeah. yeah yeah and then plus too you get the the sort of i threatened to strike her if she didn't you know like so he he's he's definitely in a yeah he's he's in a space here where he's He's confused and young and overwhelmed yeah. and not quite handling
1: things well. Well, I think that this is really Severian at the most Jack fancian, where you know, like in the, in the Eyes of the Overworld, and I think some other where mm-hmm. you have Kugel, where he says things, and they're incredibly ironic, and you know, where he he wanders into stuff he he speaks of having high motives or whatever but he's really just kind of a dumb guy who goes around and and chops people up or beats them over the head yeah
0: so here's another way to look at this maybe this is just a good point for severian being really flustered and starting to get overwhelmed by everything that not just the strangeness of the place and the people he's meeting but now he's really come face to face with okay i've now i've got this weird weapon in my hands that has almost killed me once, and so now he's terribly afraid he's going <laughs> to die. And all the strange ways he's acting with women all around him—you know—I can, I could give the guy a little bit of an excuse for being distracted by everything oh,
1: okay. that's going on. Right now. <laughs> but probably poetry is not what he's thinking about. It. No, I wouldn't think what he's about. talking about. Finally, Severian threatens Aja with a beating if she doesn't leave Dorcas alone, which normally would make sex at the end of the date unlikely. Dorcas <laughs> is 15 steps behind them, and Severian calls to her to join them. So they walk in silence, but getting a lot of looks because that's the way normal people respond to a torturer. Severian is soaking wet. He's letting his cloak show under his mantle. Aja's dress is torn just above her hip and whether or not she's holding the tear to cover her breast, she's still, you know, a sight Dorcas is still covered with dried mud because they didn't put her back in the water and spin her around. Like Hildegren suggested the mud cakes, her golden hair and leaves smears of powdery Brown on her pale skin. Ah, that's where Severian got his pale skin, I guess. Above us, The Avern brooded like a gonfalon. From it there drifted a muric perfume. Uh, A gonfalon is like a banner at the top of a pole that leads a procession of cardinals or something. Uh, The Avern flower is still half-closed and shines white as a bone, its leaves looking almost black in the sunlight. Dim, reddish sunlight, remember. And that's the end.
0: One other word there that uh, Wolf does talk about in Castle of Days is myric, that it's like myrrh. I should say myrrh, yes. but like myrrh, one of the, the three gifts. Um, and the one thing he points out is that myrrh was formerly used in embalming. Well, embalming yes. is definitely appropriate for what's going on in this lake, <laughs> since that's basically <laughs> yep. what's happening is they're preserving the people.
1: Exactly. It's uh, Yeah, it, it, everything about the Avern is death, right? It's it lures people into death. Severian so is being lured into death. Its its leaves are black even in the sunlight. Its flowers are white as a bone, and its smell is like myrrh, like the like it's a it's a it's a it's stuff you put on a dead body before you wrap them up.
0: And it is. It's a really weird. I I mean, almost like an icon that he shows. He leaves us with a, with a very deliberate image of these three crazy Mm -hmm. people carrying uh, a (laughs) banner that's I mean a flag of death basically that is hard to really see what it is you're looking at. So everything is disheveled and confused. And um, you might say dissolute since like it was the flower of yep. disillusion. The whole image that we're left with is chaos. And you got, you got Severian being all messed up, um, you know, had been out, had a crush on Asia and now he's mad at her. And he was sorrow <laughs> for, he was sad for Thecla, but now he's got this going on and he's going off to fight and yeah everything is crazy. So, so to sort of pull back, then you've got a chapter that starts with stuff all about resurrection with the, the symbol and the, and the hyacinth. And then you end with this strange thing of death and this strange flower of death. And I think it's, it's kind of cool that, that it starts and ends with a flower. Um, both of those flowers have some uh, a clear direction, but then also are kind of mixed up. little bit like i talked about how that's a water hyacinth that is you know with with dorcas it's the the symbol of resurrection but also the symbol of a thing that terrifies her since it's the water hyacinth the avern is black in the sun right so it's even in the most light it looks the weirdest and is hard to focus on so even that thing is confusing um and so you have this really cool kind of uh Symmetry at the both ends of the chapter of the flowers right. and the confusion over what should be purely good and what should be purely evil, not quite being that
1: way. All right. So we certainly hope you have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints. I'm anxious to hear, you know, any more theories about Hildegren or Dorcas, or Aja, and bring your comments to us on the Facebook group, subreddit, Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do all those things on the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf-reading friends. And, until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Take care, everybody.
0: So immediately, right off the bat, of course, hyacinth being you know an, a flower that is related to, um, uh, oh shoot, my vocabulary is dead. Oh, I don't want my vocabulary to go this early in the podcast. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> like my, my memory for words, do it's not that late. <laughs>